Episode number 33 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is video game historian and author David L. Craddock. David recently published a long read on Shaq News called Bet on Black, How Microsoft and Xbox Changed Pop Culture, Part 1. David also curates the Game Bundle on Story Bundle, which benefits charities, including our own, uh, and also co-authored the article that we ran on GameHistory.org on where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego. So we like him a lot. Uh, David, <laughs> welcome to the Video Game History Hour. I like you all a lot, too. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so David is here essentially today to uh, discuss where the Xbox came from, because um, it's a pretty interesting story. So um, where do we start? Do you think it do you think it starts like your book does with Ed Freeze? I think it kind of starts with Ed Freeze. And the reason I started with Ed is because I feel the style of nonfiction I write is called uh, literary nonfiction or novelistic nonfiction, which means you want it to read like a novel. And to get into novels, readers need characters. And I found Ed to be a unique character. I was a little worried how this jump would work, actually, because we start with Ed and his ambition to get into games. And then I follow some other people around and then we go back to Ed. But it's I think Ed works as our anchor point. Because uh, right, Ed doesn't get into games, you know, no. I mean, you know, he, his, his early games and then uh, Xbox is a very big gap in between it, there. It, it really is. He's someone who, like a lot of developers um, at the outset, he didn't really know there was a career in making games. It was something he liked to do for fun. But in the meantime, he held down a day job making spreadsheets and things like that uh, for Microsoft. And I wanted to start there. Because um, while I was researching, this was originally going to be a one-part story, now it's two or three, just on the Xbox, gener Xbox generations of hardware. But the more I looked, the more I realized that no one had written um, in depth about Microsoft's gaming history pre-Xbox. I'm sure this is something you folks deal with a lot. Before the internet kind of became ubiquitous, especially with broadband access, a lot of history, not just video game history, was kind of scattershot in, in interviews, old magazine articles, things of that nature. Um, I even went on Wikipedia. It's always kind of my starting point to see where the sources will take me. And when I clicked on Microsoft Game Studios, it just directed me to Microsoft Xbox. And I thought, no, I'm old enough to remember Age of Empires and Minesweeper and all those games. I, I'm pretty sure they came before Xbox. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to kind of document as much of that history as I could. That's kind of remarkable that that the Microsoft there's not a Microsoft Game Studios Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yeah, it just it just redirects. In fact, you should have been a fly on the wall in in the uh, so my my uh, the CEO of Shack News Asif Khan lives about eight minutes away. We meet up occasionally for podcasts, just to play video games and hang out. And he said, "So how's the Xbox long read coming?" And I said, "About that." I kind of want to write the history of Microsoft. Is that cool? And he said, uh, I do this about once a year where something I start, you know, kind of yay big about the size of a hot dog. And then it just balloons until you've got a whole like nine decker submarine sandwich thing that I'm trying to put together before the end of the year. Wait, you um, do this only once a year? 
I feel like every uh, project I start ends up like that. <laughs> yeah, it's well, so in let's see, in 2019, I actually kept it relatively small. I wrote about the beginnings of this is just for Shack News. I wrote about the beginnings of, of EverQuest and a couple of other games, uh, John Romero's Sigil, the unofficial, now kind of sort of official fifth episode of Doom. Um, but originally last year, but before lockdown from COVID and everything happened, I said, I want to write the history of Xbox. And then I found myself spending a lot more time inside, more than I already did, which is kind of a feat. Um, and I, I wrote several other long reads. I did one on um, uh, Life is Strange, another on Doom Eternal that I kind of coordinated with its software to go up around launch. And all the while I was working on uh, on Bed on Black. And uh, the reason it got split in half is, you know, I thought, you know, there's over 10 chapters here before I even get into Xbox. So we might want to break <laughs> this up just because I'll go insane otherwise. So, yeah. So, I mean, let's start there. Um Microsoft is not originally a video game company. So where do they start with video games? How does that even get on their radar? The funny thing is, I think like a lot of kids, I, you know, I, I mentioned Minesweeper. I remember playing Minesweeper, Ski Free, Solitaire. Everybody's played Solitaire, Windows Solitaire at least once. I kind of thought it might have started there, but it actually goes back to the late 70s or early 80s. When, like almost everyone else, they got a hold of the the text adventure game Colossal Cave Adventure, and they actually published their own version. And then they also published a game called Microsoft Decathlon, and that was it for a long time. So they probably didn't see a lot of revenue from those games. They still don't, really. Even the Xbox division is kind of a small cut of the, the Microsoft pie relative to everything else they do. But... Um, there was interest there. I started with Ed Freeze because he had an interest in games. And then you know, fast forward in the story a bit, when Ed got to Microsoft, he noticed that a lot of interns, just when they had nothing else to do, would code their own games. And this is when they weren't playing Pup Hut in the, in the hallways of Microsoft. Uh, now, let's, let's be clear. This is not like Pup Pup saves the parade, Pup Pup. No. This is, this is no. real life Pup Pup. <laughs> Setting up obstacle <laughs> courses with glass <laughs> bottles and cups and all sorts of stuff. Um, and, uh, someone at Microsoft, another intern said, you know, we might be able to just package this. And so he went around, um, and he said, Hey, if you've been working on a game and if you worked on it here, the subtext being Microsoft kind of owns it anyway, um, why don't we put together, uh, a disc of these small games? And so that's kind of where software such as Minesweeper, um, oh shoot, the name escapes me. You probably remember the one where you'd have balls bouncing around the screen. And then you'd have to like draw walls to kind of get the ball narrow and narrow to trap it. Je- uh, Jezbol, yeah, that was that was that's it. Uh, it's almost like someone was silently mouthing it from above. Uh, <laughs> got it right there. Um, and uh, I loved that game too. And I just I never really I, I'd always thought of those games as synonymous with Windows. You install Windows, you get those games. But once upon a time, a lot of them came on this little game disc that Microsoft put out, and it it kind of grew from there. Um, Ed Freeze was doing very well on the the Excel team, and um, one day he got an opportunity, or rather an offer, to come in and lead the games publishing business. He loved games, so he was really excited, but the interesting thing was everyone around, around the company who caught wind of this said, dude, don't do that. Games is a dead end. We don't care about games. It's just something so we can say, yeah, we have games covered. They're just checking boxes. And so... 
Ed was hesitant, but he did it. And he went there and he found that they were working on all these little small projects. And again, Microsoft focused mostly on publishing. So what he sent his guys out to do was, hey, if, if there are any developers you know of, just see if we can sign them to a publishing contract. We'll get our name on the box. And the first big one was for Windows 95. That was uh, Fury 3 or Fury Cubed, stylistically cubed. Um, but really, it was just kind of a, a Windows 95 port of uh, Terminal Reality's earlier game, uh, Terminal Velocity for DOS. But that's kind of where they got um, got going. And um, then from there, actually, Age of Empires was actually kind of already embryonic. Um, it had started with um, Ed's predecessor, uh, Tony Garcia. He ran the games group, and it was even a much smaller operation then, and he he saw something in the Age of Empires studio, send them to a publishing contract, but it was still kind of plodding along when Ed came on. And Age of Empires, I would say, was the big one. That was the halo of Windows, I guess, to keep it in, in the context of Xbox. Um, people looked at that, and even though, obviously, Ensemble was the developer, the Microsoft logo was very prominent, and people finally thought, oh, this isn't just Solitaire. Uh, Microsoft makes PC games, too, and that was kind of their big coming out part. So it's probably a good time to ask then, um, what is DirectX? Because it feels like that's something that's kind of being developed around this time as well. That was uh, another group. There were a lot of hardware groups. And in fact, there wasn't even a games group. Games was part of a larger unit called uh, the Entertainment Group. They did things like Microsoft Encarta was being developed alongside the publishing deals for Fury Cubed and things like that. Because <laughs> the Bill most Gates, entertaining piece of software. The most entertaining piece of software ever. Microsoft, Bob, Encarta, and Age of Empires. The three go together <laughs> like chocolate and ketchup, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, all, all this stuff was in, in development. And then DirectX was happening because um, three uh, tech evangelists, most prominently Alex St. John, someone talked about the most, were... Um, were interested in recruiting more developers to make games for Windows because they saw Windows 95 as a big opportunity for games publishing. The only problem was, historically, up to that point, most game developers preferred DOS because DOS didn't hog resources. It was very fast and efficient. And it's hard for those of us who grew up using boot disks and things of that nature to remember, but compared to Windows, I mean, Windows up until... Um, for quite some time, was just a shell for DOS. It was a graphical overlay for DOS. And so by booting into Windows, game developers said, well, I don't want to do that because then a lot of the resources I could use for my games are being used to draw dialogue boxes and windows and things like that. Um, so, you know, Alex St. John and his, his group had this amazing piece of technology and they said, well, we, we need to get um, a bunch of big developers on board. Who do we know who we can talk to? And one of the names that came up was John Carmack, who was um, at the time probably, well, most of the team was making levels for Doom 2, um, and they were contracting fan-made levels for Final Doom, which came out in 96. Uh, John was working on Quake, and so Alex St. John uh, and Gabe Newell, in turn, while Gabe was there before leaving the fence uh, to found Valve, reached out and said, hey, we want to, to bring more games to Windows. What do you think about Doom? And John Carmack really said, hmm, uh, he was fine with that. He was busy with Quake, so he just kind of <laughs> gave them the the Doom source code and and said, "If you can make it work, cool." And Wait, is, I, is this is this the first instance of uh, can it run Doom? 
Yeah, oh no, <laughs> it, it might be one of the first. It's definitely not the first, though. But this was this definitely predates pianos and toasters and refrigerators and things like that. Um, and and to be clear, this is like it's not so much that they're asking. Uh, those guys to make a Doom port. It's just give us the source code, we'll do it, and then you can sell it if it works. You- exactly. That was the most enticing part of the pitch. Uh, Alex said, you don't have to do anything. We'll get it working. And this was to show off DirectX, right? Like Correct. This was to, Correct. So, and, and DirectX, you know, it's essentially, it's addressing the problem that, that you just kind of alluded to, right? Which is mm-hmm. that, if you're if you're a game developer working in DOS or indeed in like early Windows even, which is practically just a, a you know a, a coat of paint on top of DOS, yeah. um, you have direct access to the machine. Like you can talk directly to the machine, and there's nothing in between to slow your code down. Um, but with Windows 95 now, um, it's it's no longer DOS. It's actually its own operating system that can run DOS stuff kind of separately um and so writing a windows game before DirectX um was really challenging and and you just didn't have nearly the amount of power that you would if you wrote it for dos instead because um windows was hogging all those resources right like like you said just drawing things on screen like whether the sound card is being activated like windows is hogging all of those and and as a game developer you're kind of begging it for scraps at that point yeah that's that's true and then kind of on top of that you have the fact that um this happens with consoles too Mm -hmm. Uh, typically you'll see a lot of the best games on a console come out near the end of its life cycle because by that point the developers know it so well um, that they can they can make things they couldn't have four or five, even two or three years earlier. And that was kind of happening on the PC. A lot of developers said, well, we know DOS. We can wring every ounce of performance out of it. Now you're asking us to use Windows, which is already a resource hog. Why on earth would we do that? And that was the second part of the pitch. DirectX was this API that said, hey, it doesn't matter what video card you have, what sound card, what peripherals you're using. Because remember back in the days before DirectX, developers had to say what sound cards are popular, which do we need to support because users could have anything in their PC case. DirectX's job was to say, I'm just the middleman. You don't have to worry about this. I'll take this and plug it in where it needs to go. And Doom 95, really, which was, again, just kind of a UI to run Doom games through Windows, but at a higher resolution with easier multiplayer connectivity, um, even though by that time, Doom was about two and a half, three years old, Doom was still the king of the world. This was before first-person shooters were FPS. They were Doom clones. Mm-hmm. And so seeing seeing Doom running on Windows um, was enough to make a lot of developers say, yeah, okay, I think we can try making the Switch. This seems like a good proof of concept. Uh, Diablo also had a similar story. One of my earliest books was Stay Well and Listen. Uh, and Dave Brevik, the co-founder of Blizzard North, uh, which is the the half of the studio that created Diablo, um, was really excited about DirectX. And so in late, I think it was the summer of 96, there was a, a bunch of PC magazines that carried a demo disc. On that disc was a two-level demo of Diablo. And it was only playable through Windows 95. And that game sold like wildfire because a lot of people by that time, they had Windows, they had um, DirectX, the SDK installed, and they definitely wanted to play Diablo. So Diablo played a pretty crucial role as well. Is there is there a sense that um, 
games sold windows at this point or is it the opposite oh it's very much the opposite games were something that people bought since they had windows anyway you know really the big seller um was uh still like for example microsoft works in fact there was kind of an intercompany war between works and office i mean obviously works a lot of people haven't even heard of it today and that's because office eventually grew um, powerful enough internally to kind of cannibalize works but really it was just about Microsoft having a, a foothold, you know, planting a flag in as many plots of soil as they could, just so that you had that much more reason to run Windows rather than, you know, Linux or Mac OS or whatever. So this is slightly off topic and slightly going backwards. Um, but um, one of the functions of the Video Game History Foundation is um, collecting media that would be of interest to to historians uh, studying games and, and interactive media in general. And um, a lot of that tends to be, you know, print magazines. And uh, we recently got one. I can't remember the title offhand, but it, it's, it's a trade magazine for creators of multimedia in like 1995. Um, and I was flipping through it. We got it like last week, I think. And there's this big article on this uh, complete disaster from Disney with a Lion King CD-ROM. And I'm reading this and I'm going, wow, this piece of history is probably totally forgotten. <laughs> like this is, this is, this is really interesting. I bet this is only discussed in, in like the multimedia world, but uh, I was reading the, uh, the, the, the Xbox long read and, and, and there it was, it actually was a really big deal. Yeah, it was a huge deal. This was at a point where, you know, the DirectX and games groups or subgroups in some cases were saying, like, look, we need a really a hit product because there was actually um, an API before um, DirectX and Lion King was one of the games written on this API. And so um, Microsoft worked out this deal with Disney that said, look, let's let's let us port Lion King with this. Um, it'll be huge. It'll be one of the best-selling games on Windows, which even like at the time, I would not have played a platformer on Windows because really before the Xbox controller, the Xbox 360 controller became standard, game pads were kind of all over the place. These days, it's it's kind of like trying to find a controller with your phone that every game developer on mobile supports. It's just not out there. And the ones that were weren't that good. People finally remember the Gravis gamepad, but I'm convinced that those people never use the Gravis gamepad. Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah. Is that the one with the screw-in joystick? On- you, you can have the screw-in joystick. The, <laughs> the big problem, though, was the buttons. It had force-face buttons, kind of like the Super Nintendo, but they were concave. You actually had to press your thumb into the insert to press the button. And so uh-huh. you couldn't do things. Like, you know, on the Super Nintendo, when you played Lion King, you keep your the pad of your thumb clamped on the Y button to run, and then you press B with the lower half of your thumb. You never yeah. let up the thumb on that run button. Same with Mario World, Donkey Kong. You couldn't do that with the Gravis game. But it was I could we could do a whole podcast about this and my, <laughs> my never ending feud with the Gravis game pad. But <laughs> the point being um, that the the SDK or the API, uh, my apologies, um, was not ready to go. Uh, the game would crash on a certain type of computer. I believe it was one of Packard Bell models. Again, that's the problem. It was this very mm-hmm. specific mm-hmm. configuration of hardware. And that a lot of people had, because remember, you know, Gateway, Packard Bell, HP, they would sell these computers straight out of the box. You didn't have to set anything up, no installing your own cards. You just plug it in and power on, and Lion King wouldn't run. It was a huge PR disaster, which going back to Ed being told by everyone, hey, don't 
don't hit up games, this is career suicide. It seemed that games had so many missteps at Microsoft really before Xbox. And they've had missteps here and there. Three red lights comes to mind. But <laughs> everything before games were considered a serious business was telling, you know, conventional wisdom at Microsoft was, why are we doing this? It's costing us more money than we're earning. It's just PR disaster after PR disaster. But something you mentioned in this story is that the only person who wasn't furious about this situation was Bill Gates. Yeah, I don't. I think Bill Gates doesn't deserve um, enough credit for that. He wasn't what you would call a gamer, but he was very curious, and he wanted to cover all of his bases, not just to make money, but, but because he wanted to know how games worked. He understood they were popular, and he wanted to provide them, and, and he was kind of a, a big proponent of, of doing more games within Microsoft. In fact, I mean, we can get into the Xbox now if we want, but really... Without Bill Gates, it's it's very safe to say that the Xbox would have never gotten off the ground. His support meant the difference between a launch and just kind of quietly fading. Right. And I mean, when you when you say he's you know curious about these things, I mean, to me, it, it all makes sense with his original vision, which I, I forget the exact wording on, but it's like a computer on every desk and at every home or, or something every along home. those yeah. lines. Once, yeah. once that reality started to kind of be there. I mean, they're really at this point that was starting to uh, kind of materialize. It's like, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, what other things can we put in the home, right? Like what other ways can we continue to grow this? Cause you're not going to just be like, all right, mission accomplished and <laughs> shut Microsoft down. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and in fairness, you know, Bill Gates was looking at this not only out of curiosity, but as a money-making opportunity. And in fact, the, the idea of a game console was pitched to him as a sort of Trojan horse. There was a group, there were two groups within Microsoft, and this is kind of how big the company was by this point. The left hand and the right hand didn't know what the other were doing. Um, a bunch of people, including Ed Freeze and um, uh, Seamus Blackley, known as the father of the Xbox, and rightly so, wanted to create a console. Uh, meanwhile, there was this uh, other group who had come from um, like an HDTV division or TiVo, something like that. And uh, they were working on their own console. So anyway, we'll talk about um, Ed's and Seamus's first. Their idea was to build a computer that wasn't a computer. They actually, um, Seamus, along with a few of his, his, his closest friends at Microsoft, put together, uh, really cobbled together, uh, a, a PC that was designed to kind of boot right into a game. They actually got a copy of Tomb Raider for PlayStation, and their, their prototype, if you will, ran Bleem, which is one of the first PlayStation emulators. And it kind of worked. You could turn it on, you could go right into Bleem. So the idea that they were going to pitch to Bill was, hey, this will actually be kind of a Trojan horse. This will be a, a PC in the living room, but main, made for games, and maybe we can run other software on it too. This other team was saying, no, we really need to do a pure game console because that's what that's the appeal of game consoles. Consumers don't have to worry about blue screens of death and boot disks, they just turn the console on and it's supposed to work. And there's kind of a bake-off between those two groups. Um, Seamus's and, and Ed's idea won, but by the time the Xbox launched, they realized it was going to be, they, they couldn't find any hardware manufacturers such as Dell to get behind them because all the manufacturers would say, look guys, this is a cool idea, but everyone knows there's no money in hardware. It's money in software. So why would we build you a console that's just going to lose a lot of money for us while you get all the profits from software. And so by the time uh, they came to um, Valentine's Day, I believe this would have been uh, 
2000, um, a meeting took place called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where... That's not <laughs> what it was titled before they went. No, no, no. <laughs> not what it was On the before. calendar. You don't go into a boardroom and say, oh, what's my schedule? My, say Valentine's Day Massacre, this will probably be fine. But, but here's the thing. Even though they didn't have that name, everyone was a little nervous because they knew this is when they were going to have to tell Bill Gates, guess what? This isn't going to be a PC in the living room. This is going to be a game console. And sure enough, um, I was able to get some people give me direct quotes as long as I didn't name them. But everyone was in the room. They were gathered around. Bill Gates came storming in with the deck and said, what the f*** is this? This mm. is not what you promised me. You are going to cost me so much money. What about windows in the living room? What the f*** are you doing? And there was silence because a lot of people, it reminds me of uh, Gavin Belson on Silicon Valley where everyone would kind of really prefer to tell him what he wants to hear. Instead, they have to tell him the truth. Um, but over the course of that meeting, um, one, of, one of Bill Gates' strengths while he was at Microsoft was being willing to listen. He was a programmer, remember, and if you could prove to him that something had potential and if he could see that potential, if he could see it working, he would say, okay, well, let's move forward. Um, it was the, the combined effort of, of, of Ed and Robbie Bach, really, uh, because Seamus wasn't in the meeting. He wasn't high enough on the totem pole within Microsoft to be in the meeting, uh, who convinced him, like, look, we're, we're primed to announce this at GDC in, in a matter of weeks when you're going to get up on stage. If you think this is going to be a, a loss, a money pit for us, we can just pull the plug. We haven't announced anything yet. We can walk away from this. No harm done. But... Um, Bill said, this actually sounds interesting. Let's just give it a try. Because Seamus's pitch really appealed to him. Seamus said, I'm not just trying to do this for you know Microsoft culture, Windows in the living room. All of that is secondary or tertiary to me. What I want is a game console by game developers, because Seamus came from the games industry, by game developers for game developers. And if we build something like that, gamers will flock to it because they'll recognize one of their own. And so things moved forward from there. And I think it's an important distinction that you're saying a lot of things are called like by gamers for gamers, but this is really, <laughs> it's for game developers, meaning that game developers are going to find this console to be easy to program for um, intuitive. Uh, you know, right. it's going to be something that they want to program for um, rather right. than that's just a, go ahead. I, I was going to say that's essentially because, um, and you mentioned this, in, in the piece too, because um, games are developed in Windows, right? So it, it's already an extremely familiar architecture. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, why are we crossing a bridge to other platforms when we can just stay on our side where we're building yeah. them to begin with? Also for added historical context, remember that this was before PlayStation 2 launched in America, but a lot of developers were already talking amongst themselves that PS2 was a bear to develop for. And so this, the, the idea of something like the Xbox that was easy, that was made for developers to just jump in and write code without having to learn a completely new platform was something game developers found very, very appealing at the time. Yeah, and I mean, that that's really playing, I guess, to Microsoft's strengths, right? It's, it's uh, you know, in Japan, you can, you can create this brand new hardware architecture and, and people have to write for it. But um, we're a computer company. We're the Windows people. And, right. And yeah, it's, it just, you know, even now it's just like, yeah, that makes sense. That's really smart. It really does. And this is, you know, we have to remember that, you know, 
Nintendo and Sony were dominant at the time, but even when Nintendo and Sega were dominant, the culture of console games was the same. You had to go to Nintendo or Sega or whomever, hat in hand, and say, we want this many cartridges, and hope that you could sell those cartridges, because they were very, very expensive. They actually shipped from Japan by boat. And Nintendo said, yes, you can make games on our platform, but you're kind of, sort of, technically a competitor, so we don't really want to help you. A lot of companies didn't even get development kits. They had to reverse engineer the NES or look at a manual written mostly in Japan to figure out how to build these kits to make software. Microsoft was saying, oh, you know how to write programs for Windows? Well, here, just you know, port it to Xbox. And that was going to be a big thing for a while in the plans as well. A lot of PC games, um, at least hypothetically, could be ported directly from PC to Windows. And we're seeing that definitely more now with things like Microsoft Game Pass. Um, but back then, the idea was very, very exciting. The developers could say, wow, instead of a lot of downtime, having to learn to develop for GameCube and Dreamcast and PS2, we can do an Xbox game, bring it to PC and use other resources for these other boxes, all of which are still very esoteric and have their own way of doing things. And what I think is really compelling about that, you know, if you're a developer at the time, is if you're doing a multi-platform game um, for say ps2 and gamecube um you do have this newcomer microsoft right it's, it's maybe not as this maybe not as proven out as the other two but it's like well the dev cost for this is probably significantly cheaper because there, there's less uh abstraction of our work because we've got this already running in windows yeah exactly and the interesting historical context for this is that no one thinks of microsoft as an underdog but in a way, they kind of were, because in the games business, all they had done up to this point was publish PC games. They had, you know, they, they, they acquired the flight simulator company. So, yes, they had an in-house game dev team, but they were assigned to one franchise. They were just working on flight simulator. And that was the highest earning product from the games division. But again, you look at the flight simulator, it's peanuts compared to what, what Office is doing, what Windows is doing, all of these other quote unquote serious business products. Right. I mean you have a you have a company that's or a you know a team that is making money, but their tens of millions or whatever are nothing when you look at the landscape of Microsoft as billion multi billion dollar business. Yeah, it might as well be like a hot dog stand. <laughs> Really good hot dogs, but if that's not what you're you know, looking for, then you're kind of in trouble. And the funny thing is, despite um, Bill Gates you know, saying, okay, we'll go forward, um, and everyone, Seamus, Robbie Bach, everyone said you know, to, 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 to Bill's credit, he didn't question us again. We were, he gave us okay, and so we moved forward with that, and he never changed his mind. But he did secretly meet with Sony saying, hey, what if we could work together? And Sony just kind of said, no, you're Microsoft. Who are you kidding? And, and Bill Gates left. And even before the, the, the meeting that became the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, um, Robbie Bach had people going to Nintendo, going to, to EA saying, what if we like acquire you and you could just make games for us? And Nintendo said, no, nope. even back then they were in, they were very much in their own world. Um, EA said, okay, well, let's say, let's say we do that. We make a ton of money selling Madden and all these other platforms. So you're saying we could only sell it on Xbox? it sounds like you are looking for someone to make hardware and we just kind of, we don't want to put all of our eggs in your basket. If you flop on this, like everyone expects you to, we're going to just remain platform agnostic and make games for everything. Let's be clear. This is EA heavy supporter of the 3DO. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's that's one of the that's just one egg in a basket, and that egg broke hard. But they had you know eleven other eggs, and it was it was just interesting how they were willing to take all those all those bets. Um, and but yeah, it was. I mean, even if at this point, I think the worst was yet to come for the Xbox team. But even at this point, it was yet another miracle that Xbox, the console that became Xbox, was was going to move forward at all. So what? I mean, where do we go from here? What what becomes the what gives Xbox any sort of edge in a market other than with developers? Uh, the Rock. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was actually a big thing that Microsoft um, got um, uh, when they when they revealed the Xbox. They got Dwayne the Rock Johnson from what was then the WWF to take the stage with Bill Gates, and that was actually a big deal. That was actually anecdotally, I was in college at the time, or maybe just finishing high school. But I, like many, I thought Microsoft, I wasn't as down on them as a lot of pundits seem to be. Um, because, again, the, the irony to me is that all these people were saying Microsoft will never make it. They're new. We're saying the same thing about Sony five years earlier. And then Sony came and dominated Nintendo and Sega to the point where Sega eventually had to drop out of the hardware business. But getting that mainstream attention from the star like The Rock was a big deal. But the, the main thing they had to do, okay, so you get the mainstream's attention with celebrities. How do you get developers? Because, again, this is a box by developers for developers. Seamus Blackley took a lead on that. He was helped by people um, such as Kevin Bacchus, who was one of his close friends and another one of the, the DirectX evangelists. But they basically logged hundreds, of, if not thousands of hours of travel time going to all these third parties and saying, hey, we're Microsoft, we're making a console. That got the reaction that you would expect. They were almost laughed out of out of the door. Um, but they they tried to do their best by making a presentation, saying we can do this, we have this support. Western developers seemed more interested, not because they believed in Microsoft, but because by that point Sony and Nintendo had flipped places. Whereas Nintendo kind of ruled the industry with an iron fist for a long time. Sony was starting to set all the rules. And if they didn't like the rules, they would just rewrite them. And so developers said, you know what? It doesn't really even matter how well your console does. Having someone in there to challenge Sony is good for us. So yes, okay, we'll sign on. We'll get on board. There were only a couple of Japanese developers that um, that really kind of gravitated to the Xbox. Uh, Tomonobu Itagaki from uh, Team Ninja at Tecmo was very excited about it. And if you remember, Dead or Alive 3 was an Xbox exclusive, which was a big deal. I remember I bought a PlayStation 2 um, after having seen DOA 2 Hardcore, which was a port of the game from Dreamcast. I just thought there are various reasons a teenage, a bunch of teenage boys might want to play Dead or Alive. But it was also, it was also a really fun fighting game, and the graphics were just jaw-dropping. Like, that's the sort of launch that you want for your console. The PS, you know, DOA 2 Hardcore with the, with the physics, with the smoothness of the fighting, um, it really sold me. And I think it really sold a lot of people on Xbox as well. Um, but the, uh, the other interesting thing was that, you know, other than that, there weren't a lot of Japanese developers on board. Even American developers were having trouble. Microsoft had to work for a long time to court EA. And EA said, all right, so we'll put Mad on Xbox. But wait, you're making your own football game, so you're kind of courting us and competing with us at the same time. That football game was NFL Fever of 2002, which is actually, I'm not much of a sports guy, but Fever 2002 might be the best sim-style sports game I've ever really enjoyed. And that actually caused... Ed Freeze and a lot of others to kind of look at their their organization. 
you you had to make sure that any marketing and salespeople working with EA on Madden did not cross paths with any of their peers working with Microsoft on Fever because they couldn't be seen as sharing secrets or favoring their console over you know their software for their console over EA's football game for their console. Um, it caused kind of a lot of just chaos, chaos. And remember, at this time, there was finally a games group, but it was still really coming together on the fly because games and Microsoft, I mean, a lot of people, um, especially Seamus, were feeling very beaten down hearing at every turn, not only from publishers, but internally, this is never going to work. Why are we wasting so much money on this? I can't believe Bill Gates signed off on this. But because he did, everyone kind of pasted on smiles when Bill was around and, and they worked as hard as they could. But a lot of people were expecting this to completely flop. You said earlier the worst was yet to come. What did you mean by that? It was 18 months, give or take a couple months of crunching um, from, from GDC 2000 to launch in November 2001, the Xbox team was maybe the busiest division at Microsoft. And remember, they weren't only working around the clock, they were also being told by everyone else, why are you guys wasting your time with this? Morale was not exactly high. Um, hardware was very, very difficult to, name, to nail down, chiefly because of the hard drive. If you remember the size of not just the original Duke controller, but the Xbox itself, it could double as a couch if you had space in your living room. And the reason for that was because of the hard drive technology. Sony had an advantage. They had all of these deals already in place with hardware manufacturers. So they were able to do things like eventually um, link their CPU and GPU, which is part of the reason why they were able to release smaller and slimmer versions of their consoles over time. Xbox didn't get that deal locked in. Nobody within Xbox really knew what they were doing except for Seamus and a handful of others who had come from the games industry. Robbie Bach, to his credit, he listened to people who told him what to do. He trusted them, but there were mistakes they made, and, and the Xbox hard drive was one of them. Even if the capacity could have increased over time, the size couldn't, so they could never sell a smaller Xbox, which meant from day one until the time they pulled the plug, they were losing money on hardware sales. Um, another factor was finding a finding a system seller. Um, Ed Freeze took a very interesting approach. Um, Sony, if you remember, it took a while for them to kind of find Crash Bandicoot. And then they had those hilarious commercials of an actor in a crash suit with a megaphone just taunting people at Nintendo of America from outside the building. And that was great. It was kind of one of those deals where you were continuing the console wars, except it was Sony and Nintendo instead of Sega and Nintendo. But Ed actually told me I wanted a portfolio approach. I didn't want a Mario. I didn't feel we needed a Mario. He wanted to treat Xbox the same way he had treated PC games. He said, rather than having one standout hit, we'll have, we'll have a real-time strategy game. We'll have a first-person shooter. We'll have a racing game. We'll have a fighting game. And so they were slowly building this portfolio. They had DOA. They had Project Gotham, which was another internal title at Microsoft. Um, but that's around the time they found uh, Bungie and Halo. And Halo, as a lot of people know, uh, started as a Mac exclusive. In fact, the day that Microsoft's acquisition went through, um, Steve Jobs called Ed Freeze furious, and Ed had to talk him down and say, okay, look, sorry, we did kind of steal this company out from under you, but to kind of to, to mitigate this, how about we work on porting some of your games to other platforms? And they actually agreed to do that uh, for Take-Two, because Take-Two still had a, a stake in Bungie at that time as well for games like Oni. 
Um, so Microsoft found itself porting a few other games to other platforms while they were trying to get their platform off the ground. But Halo at that time, we see this in the game industry even today, Halo wasn't fully functional. A lot of that game didn't come together until the last 9 to 12 months. They were really selling a concept. And there was crunching all over the Xbox division, but it was all hands deck within Bungie, who relocated Microsoft's uh, campus, to get Halo working. And everything was just kind of ad hoc. Um, they, they came up with the Blood Gulch map kind of on the fly, improved on it later. Multiplayer was not a thing at first. In fact, Ed actually said, and he, he holds to this position, I think Halo would have done fine without multiplayer. I disagree, but it was still interesting that much like GoldenEye, uh, multiplayer and Halo came together very last minute. It was almost unplanned. Um, the guns, things like you know being able to snipe someone with the, the pistol all the way across the map, um, that came in because Bungie didn't have time to do thorough testing. And when they did, they said, oh, that's kind of fun. We'll leave it in. And so it was just nonstop crunch for 18 months. Uh, Seamus actually had, Seamus Blackley had his neighbors call the city on him because his lawn just looked like a jungle. He was never home to mow his grass. Uh, in fact, I think his neighbors even said, we thought you were dead or gone. So we're glad you're okay, but please mow your yard. Um, it was just, it was nonstop work in a company where everyone else who wasn't part of your team didn't really believe this was ever going to work anyway. So once Halo's out, is it happily ever after for the Xbox? It wasn't happily ever after quite yet. Um, in fact, Microsoft was backing a number of horses. Uh, people within Microsoft thought Halo was fun, but they didn't want to put all their marketing dollars behind it because what if it wasn't as fun as they thought it was? The Xbox took some time uh, to take off, but once Halo got going for a long time, um, people bought an Xbox just to play Halo. It was difficult to find another game that was worth buying yet another console unless you were super into Halo. But to a point, that was that was enough. Even though the Xbox Xbox Live didn't come until exactly one year after Xbox launched in November 2001, um, Xbox Live wasn't ready, which meant really Halo was kind of like another GoldenEye. You were playing split-screen multiplayer, but on a much bigger, bulkier console than the Nintendo 64. Um, I should actually backtrack real quick. The One of the biggest obstacles the team had to deal with en route to launch was 9-11. Um, a lot of executives from Microsoft were in New York or flying into New York the morning of, of 9-11-2001. In fact, Seamus tells a very harrowing story of looking out his window and seeing the second plane hit the tower. Oh, my God. And the, the pilot actually said, it's okay. I have Air Force experience. We're going to be fine. And he just swooped down, and they made an emergency landing in another part of New York. But to be that close to that made a lot of people really kind of think, We've been spending almost 18 months on this. We could have died today. You know, the towers collapsed. Robbie was in um, a hotel in Times Square kind of watching all this happen. A lot of people were just saying, are we wasting our time here? Life is short. Life is precious. Is this even worth the time? And they ultimately decided it was. They pushed through. But it was a lot more, it was very somber in New York um, from or within Microsoft, I should say, from about September to the launch. In fact, um, when the Microsoft Xbox team went back to Times Square, uh, they had organized a big uh, marketing 
event for the midnight launch. Bill Gates was there to sign Xboxes. He actually handed the very first Xbox sold to the first person in line. Uh, he and his now good buddy, The Rock, got together and played some uh, DOA 3, I believe. Um, but Robbie Box said it was, it, was very, it was very difficult for him to fly back into New York. He got PTSD because he never, he said he's never even stayed at that hotel again. And he goes to New York only when he absolutely has to. So they were facing a lot of uh, PTSD going back into the city where they had almost been uh, on the wrong side of history. Um, I mean, this is only like four months later, too. I mean, this is yeah, like two, a... two months. Yeah, two and a half months from September to November. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was uh, it, it was they were very happy to go back ultimately because it was a very successful midnight launch. And, you know, a lot of developers, developers say this, but when you get the chance to go and actually meet your customers, shake their hand, see how excited they are. It kind of makes you remember, okay, yeah, this is very exhausting and at times terrifying, but it was it was all worth it. But it still took a lot of time for the Xbox to, to get off the ground. And does that start to change with, um, I mean, is Xbox Live play a big role? It, it was, it, it didn't, it didn't. Um, Microsoft still didn't fully have EA on board because if I recall, uh, EA was thinking of starting their own multiplayer server at first they or that or i believe this is correct they didn't want to be a part of xbox live because that would have meant giving more power to microsoft they wanted to have their own systems their own interfaces in place and so they were one of the last to really jump on the xbox live bandwagon but xbox live actually didn't help much at first because if you remember microsoft required every game to have some sort of xbox live functionality but when you take a single player game like Prince of Persia Sands of Time, the functionality is, oh, there are leaderboards that you can like com compare clear times or something. You know, it felt really tacked on. It was just one more uh, node that developers had to kind of work into their game when they're trying to get the game itself up and running. Um, I would say that it was Halo 2, which is, again, another game that came out within the last year of the Xbox that really made people believe believers in what Xbox Live could do for, for multiplayer competition. Um, and Halo 2 was just, uh, I think, head and shoulders above the original um, and showed what Xbox Live could be. You had a great interface. It was easy to party up with friends. It was easy to get into a lobby, start a game, choose your game mode, set things like frag and time limits, things that even, even PC FPS games, which is where the genre started, didn't have completely ironed out. I mean, to play Doom from, from DOS, even Doom 95, I had to do a lot of clicking around on several different screens. And so Halo 2, I would say, really kind of made people realize Xbox Live is, is worth the cost of the game. And that was the other obstacle. Like you were paying a full price for, for an online service when um, a lot of people didn't even have broadband. There was discussion within Microsoft of including a 56K modem along with the Ethernet port, but... I think it was Robbie who ultimately said, you know what, if we really want to be cutting edge tech, let's not keep the modem. Let's just go Ethernet and hope that this pans out. And eventually it did, but it took several years after the Xbox launch for it to pan out. So, David, when you're putting together a work like this, how much of this is interviews and how much of it is, is uh, research? It was, um, I think I started the research and interviews last March and the long read came out in November and I was doing that sounds so fast to me. For <laughs> yeah. It's it's really, really fast and I'm still kind of tired, <laughs> but um, 
it was a good four months of, of interviews. So my process is, um, I don't like transcribing, so I tend to procrastinate on transcribing. Um, but once I do that, I, I would, I, I transcribe and then I color code my, my transcripts. Green text is what I call color. It's, it's information that will kind of paint a picture. Blue text is quotes, anything in blue there are quotes that you actually read in the long read. And my outlines are just blocks of green and blue text under headers. Like there's where this happens. There's where this happens. That's probably the second hardest part. Um, I write fiction and nonfiction. I found that when I write fiction, I'm, I'm what's known as a pantser. I, I write a lot without an outline these days because the outlining I have to do for nonfiction, where I'm dealing with real people, real lives, real feelings, has to be correct. And so I outline painstakingly. In fiction, I'm like, I just kind of want to write. I just want to have a little bit of fun with this. And it's it's worked out so far. But the outlining for the outlining and, and the transcribing for Bet on Black kind of went hand in hand. I would go, okay, I look at all these people and here's a chapter on on Halo 2 or Halo 1's control scheme, which was a big deal. Like, how do we make controls feel really good on a console? Because Goldeneye had been a start, but it was on a controller with one analog stick instead of two. Um, I would transcribe interviews with everyone who talked about that. I would put their, I would color code their transcripts, paste those color coded blocks into what I call an information directory. And then from the information directory, which is like hundreds of pages long, I would pull relevant quotes and actually move them around to form an outline that flows from point A to point wherever I want to get it. Hmm. And then I would, I would write chapters here and there. I write these, these books completely out of order because it's all about what I can write soonest and fastest while I'm still doing interviews, research and transcribing. Once it's all there, I go back and I edit the entire manuscript. I move chapters around. I see where it makes sense. I say, oh, this quote is actually more relevant here. Oops, I used this quote three times. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really a lot of building blocks and having to cut and, and finish and sand down the building blocks before I can make anything from them. And you mentioned earlier that, I mean, your scope for this project kind of changed just as you were conducting these interviews. I mean, you... At some point, you realized this couldn't just be a story about the Xbox. It had to be a story about, uh, you know, where where do video games even come from from Microsoft? Was there like a point in an interview where you realized that that needed to be the case, or was that just when you started reading about it? Um, I think, I think the more I talked to people about the launch event for Xbox in New York, the more I felt I felt like that was the, the perfect ending. Because I think Robbie Bach, he, he defined that as the beginning of the beginning. Like launching is only the first part. Now you have to support the thing. Now you have to put together a launch slate beyond just your launch window, which is the first six to nine months after a console comes out. And so that's like, okay, I want to actually stop it here because this was a high note. Then people like Seamus, Seamus leaves. Um, then, you know, Ed, Ed Freeze actually left several months before Halo 2 shipped. And I thought, this is the perfect high note. Everyone was was feeling kind of riding a high. So this is where I want the story to end because the sequel is usually a little bit darker. And the story of the Xbox 360 is actually a little bit darker. It's sort of the Empire Strikes Back. It's considered maybe one of the best of the franchise. I think Xbox 360 is probably still Microsoft's most popular console just in terms of its, of its software library and its features. 
but they also had some dark, dark days. I mean, I, I've already written the scene of, uh, of Robbie Bach gathering VPs in his basement to figure out like, what, what the hell do we do about this red light situation? What is this and how do we fix it? Mm. Um, so I kind of wanted all of that to come later. I've also written the chapter where Ed decides to leave Microsoft and it's because the Xbox business, the, the flip side or the dark side of, of games finally being taken serious seriously in Microsoft was that suddenly all the people who poo-pooed on games want to be involved because they want their name, they want credit. And there was a certain decision made for Halo 2 that um, Ed made, but Robbie Bach did not back. And he didn't because it seemed like the wrong move. And really, Ed realized later that, that, um, that that Robbie was wrong and Robbie realized that too, but at the time there were a lot of hurt feelings. And Ed decided, you know what, this isn't this isn't fun anymore. Games aren't really kind of the motley crew of Microsoft. It might be time for me to go. And so that brings me into a whole nother era of the story. Um, I did this for Stay a While and Listen as well. If you look at the history of Blizzard and Microsoft, really any game company, they start out with small hits. Then there's that hit that makes them big. So you write about the era where they were big, and then you write about kind of what happened to them since where there everyone kind of becomes a cog in the machine rather than having a very big footprint that clearly says, Hey, this is, this is what I did. This is my contribution. And so a lot of that stuff is, is still to come in parts in parts two and three of bet on black. Well, part two sounds great. What is it? Is it almost done? When can we read it? Uh, you'll read it in November. And the reason wow. is I just launched, um, I, 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 put up a Kickstarter that was funded in 24 hours and finished with over 200% of its goal. That was for a book about the making of the original XCOM, which I'll be shipping out to backers uh, in the next month or so, if they're listening. Very soon, guys, please. Um, And then I'm also under contract with another publisher to write another series of books about the, the making and cultural impact of Mortal Kombat. That manuscript is due to the publisher in September, and the nice thing is I had already started writing Bet on Black 2 by the time I decided to put it down and focus on the first, what became part one. So as soon as that manuscript is turned in September, I'm going to go through Bet on Black part two, really clean it up, really fact check it, and then that'll be up in probably November. David Craddock, world's busiest video game historian. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, it's, <laughs> I, think, I think you might be the machine of the video game history world. I don't think any of us can work like you can. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. It's it's work, as you all know, but it's yeah. also a lot of fun. And I I, I feel like I, I've always kind of clicked with with Frank and everyone at the at the the foundation because I love video game history. To me, these are stories that need to be told. I don't even really think of them as stories about video games. They're stories about people working hard to bring something into the world, to build mm-hmm. something, and that's really what excites me. So it's uh, it's a lot of work, but it's also really really fun. And that is something that you definitely bring to your approach. I mean, they're, um, I forget the phrasing you used at the beginning of this podcast, but I mean, they're, they're very much story driven and character driven, people driven uh, narratives. And I think that that's a really valuable way to learn about video game history. Yeah, it's, it, it gets tricky when, you know, characters, quote unquote, are coming in and out. But I feel like if I can anchor you to people, You'll care more about what they're working on. Even if, say, you didn't like Halo, you probably will enjoy Bet on Black because you're invested in in Ed and Seamus and, and Robbie and Tony and all these people who were who were there making stuff happen. 
Well, David, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Where can we find your work and support it online? Sure. So I, I've been the, the long news editor at Shack News for about four years now. If you go to Shack News, right on the front page, you'll see different categories of content. Just click on long reads. Everything there it was written by me with the help of, um, you know, our, our team does a lot of the editing. Our video editor, Greg Burke, writes uh, awesome videos. In fact, uh, for one, uh, Beneath a Starless Sky, we went to Obsidian 24 hours before Pillars of Eternity 2 went live a few years ago and, and did a documentary about 35 minutes long on what it's like in the studio in the 24 hours before a game goes live, which is kind of fun and ties into one of the, the longest long reads I've written as well. Um, so you check news. Uh, you can go on Twitter at davidlcryduck.com. And yeah, I would say just stay tuned to my my Twitter. I've, I've just kind of been disseminating information there when I get it because uh, I have more and more people interested in, in what I'm doing next, which is pretty cool. So, Well, and as always, we will have those links in the show notes for you. So um, thank you again, David. This has been great. Oh, yeah. This was a lot of fun. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.